As Brad had mentioned, we're going to be continuing uh, in the second week of this four-week series over the, the study of the book of Titus. Uh, so a little bit of recap here, just as we're getting back into it. Last week, we kind of had the, the five W's that we learned about Titus, right? Get a little bit of that history. Who wrote Titus? Uh, Paul wrote. Paul wrote Titus. He was writing uh, to Titus in particular. Uh, what was the book about? So what, what is the book of Titus in particular? Uh, it's about the good life. Uh, in particular, it's, it's actually about the implementation of the gospel afterwards, actually taking it out into the world and spreading it. Uh, and specifically, Paul focuses here when he's writing to Titus on living the good life. So when was this written? Uh, it was around 64, 65 AD was roughly the time that this would have been written. Uh, as well with that, why? Or sorry, where? Sorry, where was this written? Uh, we don't really know where in particular Paul wrote it, but we know he was writing to the island of Crete, uh, Cretans. Because in particular, Titus was there trying to cultivate a church. And it was a culture that wasn't necessarily actually seen throughout the world as one very respected. Uh, and then with that, why? Why did Paul write the book? Paul wrote the book, or he wrote to Titus, uh, which later became the book, to encourage Titus. To encourage him and the church that Titus was cultivating and mentoring there. Uh, so this week, uh, we're going to delve a little bit into the main point that we talked about from last week. It'll be up on the screen. But the main point is that we need to be living godly lives. Paul wants to encourage the church to or in Crete to live the good life, a godly life. Uh, and so this week, we're going to be looking at specifically what that is and what it's not. We're going to begin to delve into what Paul encourages Titus in specifically to live the good life and what that'll look like for us as the church. Um, but before we delve too deep in, uh, tell a short story, as my group knows that probably doesn't mean a short story. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about my own life, uh, actually in particular about uh, what I, looking back so far, I think has been one of the best times in my life. Growing up, I was a pastor's son. I believe I've told all of you this before. Uh, I was a grand pastor's son? Does that work? I think that works. I was a grand pastor's son as well. I grew up constantly around the Bible. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I could recite them to you back and forth. Uh, however, uh, as I grew up, I, I kind of didn't accept it fully into my life. Not, not that I didn't accept Christ into my life being a pastor's son. Uh, as a matter of fact, out at camp, I remember it was the very first time that I think I really understood what the Bible was saying. I was listening to my granddad teach at Timberlake, same place Levi talks about two weeks ago, uh, and I was listening to my granddad teach, and he was teaching over the gospel. It was the first time it really clicked in my head what it meant when Jesus died on the cross. However, I was seven. I understood how much it meant that he died on the cross and the mercy and grace and love he provided as I did what two times two did at the time. It wasn't a whole lot of in-depth understanding. Uh, but I still understood it, at least in my head. But it wasn't really for quite a few years that I would begin to live it, I'd say. Uh, and shortly after this is when I'd say my life really didn't go so well. I began to fall away, is what people would say, in how I acted. I knew all the answers. While I understood what I needed to do and what I should be doing, I wasn't living it, right? I wasn't living a godly life, a good life. Um, in particular, Really around the time I got into about 5th, 6th, and 7th grade were some of the roughest times for me. I was disobedient to my parents. I didn't care what my dad said. Even as a pastor, 
He'd have great things to teach me, and I would just zone off and ignore it. I was disrespectful. I just wanted to hang out in school that I thought were cool. They were the fun kids to be around. I didn't care what we were doing or what they were doing as long as I was with them. Um, And me and my brother had a horrible, horrible relationship. We did not get along at all. The height of all of this led to the point when I was about in sixth grade uh, when through all of my experience of gaming in my family, whether it be board games or computer games or video games, I eventually uh, became addicted to pornography. This was a very hard time in my life, and it was something that took me a very long time with much, much talk with my good friends and my family for me to actually open up and overcome it. Uh, Throughout this, uh, it was just difficult for me to see God in my life. From the outside, anybody looking at me would have said, this is a pastor's son, a good Christian boy who's in a good upbringing. However, inside, I was the complete opposite. Not that people didn't try to help me. My dad was an amazing man. He sat down with me so many countless nights trying to talk through it with me, help me, rebuking me. However, no matter what he did, even though it was out of love, I would still ignore it. Because I didn't care. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to. I was prideful and I was enjoying it. Even though I knew I wasn't living. And so I wanted to read for you a passage that became important for me. It won't be up on the screen. um, But it was something that my dad taught me that became very important in life. And it's in Matthew 7, verse 6. Uh, Jesus actually talking on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section in particular is talking about judging others, but it has some information and advice for helping others as well. Matthew 7, verse 6, it reads, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. At this time in my life, I was no better than a dog. At this time, I was no better than a pig. My father was giving me wisdom. All my friends around me that were here at church were trying to encourage me. But I didn't listen. To me, it might have been like giving a pearl to a pig. It lays in the mud, and it's never touched. Eighth grade year was a pretty strong turning point for me, though. It was the first time I started actually coming here to Brookside, and a good friend now invited me. Met him randomly in math class. But as I look back on it, the big change that occurred for me was never initially any of the rubrics that my father or my friends beforehand had made. It was never any of the wisdom or advice or knowledge that I knew. What caused me to change was seeing God and his love and mercy and grace through others' lives. Getting to see how my good friends actually represented God. How they lived the good life. This is what truly brought me closer to God. It was never the instructions I was giving. It was never the rebuking of my friends out of love. It was seeing God's love, grace, and mercy in others and how they lived and showed that. That's what changed me. Looking back, I can see that none of this was coincidence. All of this was in an elegant plan laid out. This is something that Maybe we haven't all experienced to such an extreme, but at some point in each of our lives, I bet we can say, 
Yeah, there's times when I don't want to change. Yeah, I know it's wrong to lie. But man, I get by so much easier without punishment from my parents when I do. And then even when they choose to punish us once they catch us, we still don't change. Oftentimes we'll find ourselves telling a lie a week later. It could be gossip. It could be pornography. But this is something that at one point in our lives we have all probably dealt with in some way. And so how then do we go about becoming Christians who live the good life? What does this mean? How do we delve into this? And that's what Paul is writing to Titus about. And so as we go into this a little bit, uh, there are two points that are going to be up on the screen here that I want us to look for to kind of break this into. Uh, number one, there is a time and place to rebuke those in the church. Rebuking is something that you don't find very often in the Bible. And I say in the church because when it is done in the Bible, it's done to a brother or sister in Christ. Rebuking, a uh, little bit of background here, sounds like a pretty harsh word, doesn't it? I've used it a few times. It sounds pretty churchy, right? It's like one of those church words. They sell it way up on the stage. But this word that is actually meant to benefit people. It's not a negative word. It's not meant to be done out of hate. It's not meant to be done out of your own gain, to put others down, to bring yourself up. It is the complete opposite. When you see somebody being in the Bible, it is to further their relationship with Christ. It is to benefit them, to love them, show them mercy and grace, not to bring them down. And so there is a place to, and we'll see that as Paul writes to Titus and to the church, into the church that he is cultivating there. And the second thing that we're going to see is uh, we are called to live as an example of the good life. Uh, and we'll delve into what means specifically. What does it mean to live the good life? What does it look like day to day? And so with that in particular, we're going to switch over and we're going to get into Titus. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, and we'll read all the way through to 2, verse 10. And here, like I said, we're going to be seeing how Paul is encouraging Titus to encourage him in the church that he's bringing up in Crete and to encourage the church itself and how they live their lives. So it'll be on the screen. You're free to look at that as well in NIV. Uh, or if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there now. Otherwise, if you've got the app, that works too. Uh, but I'll be reading from here and you guys can follow along. So in Titus chapter 1, For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be bound in the faith. And will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciousnesses are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to, or appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith 
in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be con- so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So let's go back all the way up to the first section we read. Uh, We're going to look specifically at verses 13 and 14, and let's break this down into what Paul is writing to Titus. Here we see that there is a problem. Sorry, I skipped ahead. Verse 10 to 12. Here we see that there is a problem that Paul is addressing in the church of Crete. The elders, the leaders, as it reads, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Here writing to Titus about the leaders in the church. The Jewish leaders in Crete themselves are actually people, as it says, that are full of meaningless talk and deception. Just as the society views Crete, it has seeped its way to church. They are people who lie, who slander, they do things for their own benefit and gain. And as it reads on, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. What they're doing in Crete, how the church is right now, they are actually pulling families away from God, disrupting them, not showing a clear path. As Paul is writing it, They are not being effective leaders. They're doing it for their own dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Here Paul writes to Titus about the problem that he's hearing about in the church of Crete. The leadership itself is not living the good life. They don't understand what it means to live for God. And so after this, we see that Paul gives Titus the solution, the next step to take for them. And that picks up here 13 and 14 now. This saying is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Here Paul points that there is a point to rebuking. There's a spot for it. You'll notice again, he's rebuking the leaders, people who are brothers and sisters professing to be Christians. And he tells them, why are we rebuking them? So that they will be sound in the faith. This is something done out of love. This is something done to bring them up, not tear them down. Rebuking is not easy in our society today. But we see it throughout the Bible. It's something that's supposed to be done out of humility and love from both parties. And when done right, brings people up. 
However, the next two verses are a word of caution against this. Because just as me, myself, I did not listen to the rebukes of my friends and family. As a matter of fact, I blew them off. I ignored them. I didn't care. As we read here in verse 15 and 16, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciousnesses are corrupted. They need to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Here Paul understands when he's writing to Titus that you are to rebuke them. That is what we're called to do when a brother or sister is stumbling. Rebuke them out of in love, bring them up. But unless heart is open, unless it's standing, unless it has the love of God in it dwelling, ready to accept the rebuke, it will only harden. It will reject it. And as it said in Matthew 7, will turn back and attack you. It is something that is difficult to do. And so right here, we see that changes his tone. And he switches instead from addressing the leadership in particular to addressing Titus and how he wants to cultivate the church to live a good life and what each age group should do. So here in chapter 2, we read verse 1 through 3. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Here we see that when Paul is writing this, he's not just saying this is the good life for Crete. In verse 1, we see he points out, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. This is a way of living that draws you closer to God. This is exactly what the gospel wants us to do. This is how we should live. Immediately after that, we see exactly how we're supposed to do so. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Older men are supposed to be people that are respected. They're calm-minded. They're self-controlled. They know what's going on. They know what they're doing. They're wise in their old age. They're leading the younger ahead of them. And above all else, it says, and in sound faith, in love and endurance. They should be people that are grounded in their faith, being examples for those around them, and show them the love of God, or how difficult it gets, endure it. From there it says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Here we see that as older women, they should be examples they should teach what is good to those around them. They shouldn't gossip. They shouldn't find themselves deep in a bottle of wine. But again, be examples with them. It says that they should teach. Teach who? Teach who what is good. And so from here, it continues on down to verse 5 and 8, where we see who these people are leading, who the elders are teaching. And so in verse 4, it says, It can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one 
will now find the word of God. Here we see that it is specifically referencing that they can teach the younger women. They're to be guides. They're to be the examples of how to live. They are to teach them through their own experience and wisdom of their use. And what do they do? How do they go about living this life? Again, to be self-controlled, pure, busy at home. They don't lay around all day. They go out and they do things. Kind. Be subject to their husbands so that no one may malalign the word of God. It doesn't stop there, though. He goes on and he says, Similarly, Titus, you need to encourage the young men to be self-rolled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Here we see that young men are supposed to, again, be self-controlled. Crete is a place full of liars, gluttons, and lazy men. All they do is benefit themselves. All they do is draw gain for them. They need to have an example. And he calls Titus to be this example. He needs to be sound in his speech. He needs to teach what is right, his doctrine. And in doing so, we begin to see what he's getting at will happen. He'll begin to see, show what the good life is. And in verse 8 we read, So that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. He's beginning to get at this idea of what happens. And so it ends here, verse 9 and 10, as he brings it to a conclusion. And he says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make things about God, our Savior, attractive. I don't know about many of you, but I'm not a slave. I don't think anybody in this room is, but I am a servant. I serve the Lord my God. And everything I do, as it says, I should be subject to him. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Try to please in my day-to-day life. I would consider a 100% good job day when I go out and in every little thing that I do, I have pleased God. I have honored him. I have glorified him. But it doesn't stop there. It says not to talk back to him. God oftentimes wants us to do things that are difficult in our lives or seem crazy and oftentimes are resistant to it. However, if we do that, We might as well just go read the story of Jonah. It doesn't end any different. It's just harder. From there, it says not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Why do we live the good life? Why do we live a godly life? Because when we live a godly life, When we live the good life, it shows people God's mercy, grace, love, passion. It represents the gospel and why Jesus came back, why he rose from the grave. And in doing so, it is attractive. It draws 
people to it. Guys, it was never the rebukes that brought me to God when I was in my hardest time. It was my friends who lived an attractive, godly life. And when I was around that, and when I was near them, and I saw what great mercy, love, and grace was being provided, I had nothing bad to say about them. I was ashamed of my own life. Verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is good life. This is a godly life. So what does this mean? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for how you should live your life? Paul breaks it down so well for Titus. He breaks it down for the elders. He breaks it down for the young. And he goes a step further and breaks it down for all of us in the church today. We are to be servants that in everything that you do should honor and by God. Because in doing that, it will create more change in people's hearts than rebuking them ever has. The gospel spread through love, through mercy and grace, from people going out and teaching it through their lives, not just their head knowledge. This is the good life. And so as we begin to go to small groups tonight, I really want you guys to think about, are you living the good life? If not, why? What is stopping you from it? What is in your path? For me, the turning point, the biggest struggle I had to overcome was my addiction to pornography. And it was not easy. It took many hours, lost with my father, and good friends living the good life. Jesus Christ came down to earth was a servant to others, showed them what a godly life looked like, and despite this, served them to death so that they could live forever because of mercy, grace, love, and kindness. When he on the cross for our sins and rose again, we are all able to live a godly life, the good life. Let's pray.